God with us. That's good news, and that's the heart of the Christmas story. I don't know about you, but I could use some good news because whenever I listen or read, whether it's on the internet or television or in print, about the news that's happening, it's not good news. When I see things of various mass shootings, sometimes at churches, when I see things as far as acts of terrorism, when I see news of uh, various civil unrest or racial tensions, when I see these types of things and hear of allegations and revelations of various forms of abuse, that's not good news. And what it does for me as an individual and probably for you and for our collective culture is to, to tempt us to fear, to be apprehensive, to be worrisome, to think, what's the world coming to? And yet this is not the first time that, that we really, as a nation, even have been at this place. In the 1932 inaugural address, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said these words, which you've probably heard in a number of different places, but he says this, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And honestly, we oftentimes lift that quote out and we look at that and I personally have said, really? There's a lot of stuff to fear. What do you mean? That seems sort of stick your head in the sand type of approach. And yet, when I went back and read President Roosevelt's entire inaugural address, I found that he is far from sticking his head in the sand. You see, the circumstance in our country at the time was we were just on the verge of being at the very depths of the Great Depression. And in his inaugural address, he addresses the issues as far as job he addresses the issues as far as life savings over many years and for thousands, tens and hundreds of thousands of people had just evaporated because of financial mismanagement and bank failures and all these types of things. And he calls out the issues. But he is not saying that there is no reason to be afraid. Listen to what he says. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And then he names it nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. It's not saying we should never have feelings of fear or anxiety. It's saying we should not be paralyzed by them. We should not allow fear to dictate to us what our future will be because of the past. Those are good words. Is it any wonder that we have issues with fear? On a personal level, maybe not the national level, many of us have experienced a time when you have some suspicious, nagging ailment and you go to the doctor and you're fearful of what the outcome will be, especially when it comes back with something like cancer. So many of our family have experienced when you sit down and maybe you're the one that, that keeps the books, writes the bills, and, and you're writing out all of the obligations that you have and you come to the end and you, as they say, the end of the paycheck comes a lot before the end of the month. There's just not enough to go around. We're tempted to fear. When you go to the boss's office and instead of an attaboy or girl or promotion, you get a pink slip and you're let go for whatever reason. You're fearful. What's going to happen next? What's gonna, where do I go? What do I do? 
When a spouse tells you that he or she wants a divorce, you may have seen it coming. It may blindside you, but there's a range of emotions, including fear. What's the future going to hold? When your son comes to you and says that he's gay, when your unmarried daughter comes to you and says that she's pregnant, again, a raft of emotions, but fear is one of the headliners, isn't it? Fear. Because there are so many things to fear, is it any wonder that, that and even for us as Christ followers, that within the Bible, one of the most commonly stated commands, imperatives, directives to people who want to follow Christ is don't be afraid. Dr. Lloyd Ogilvie, who is a minister, a pastor, and also was the Senate chaplain for quite some time, had done a study on this and found that there are 366 independent statements of that nature. It may be in all of its forms. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Be strongly, be strong and courageous. These types of things throughout the scriptures, 366, do the math. That's one for every day of the week, plus one for the leap year. Maybe God knew we would need this because we're prone to fear as people. It's a bad part of the human condition. John Ortberg wrote a book entitled, If You Want to Walk on Water, you got to Get Out of the Boat. It's a great title. It's worth the book just for the title. It really is an awesome book. I'd encourage you, if you want to walk more by faith, get his book and read it. He addresses a lot of different issues. John Ortberg, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. Here's what he said. I think that God says fear not so often. One of the reasons that God says fear not so often is that fear is the number one reason that we as human beings are tempted to avoid what God asks us to do. In other words, they like that escape clause. Seriously, when you do come to be a follower of Jesus, sometimes life gets harder. And God does ask us to do things that seem to be impossible on the surface and without him are impossible. And this morning as we look into the Christmas narrative in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to see that that's true in Joseph's life. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. And Matthew writes this according to Joseph's viewpoint. Luke writes it more from Mary's viewpoint. So you get both sides of that. And Matthew is really establishing more of the legal uh, credentials that Jesus has to be considered of the house and lineage of David and the king, the rightful king of Israel. I'd invite you to turn with me now, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. And I'll read it. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. That's what will be on the screen. If you've got your Bible, I invite you to read along with me. If you want to do that on a digital device, that's awesome. Just I'd prefer you read it and not be checking out the NFL scores. We will trust you with that. Listen to what he has to say. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame revolved to divorce her quietly but as he considered these things behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying Joseph son of David do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. It's a reading of the Word of God. It's written by Matthew. You know, before the good news of Christmas comes, Joseph gets some bad news. Now think about this. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. They're engaged. But this engagement is much more binding. It it is much more uh, formal than what engagements of our day are. In the Jewish culture, if a man and a woman were to become engaged, regardless of how that started, whether it was an arranged marriage or whether it was their idea, and in this case, Joseph was probably quite a few years older than Mary, But whatever the circumstances, the the marriage itself, the betrothal, was a year-long period. But it was as legally binding as if they were truly husband and wife. So that's why oftentimes they'll speak of wife or husband, even though they were in the betrothal period, the engagement period. As they look at this, Joseph is undoubtedly anticipating with great joy his upcoming wedding and probably counting off the days, maybe even having a a calendar on his workshop and, and he's marking off the days and the weeks and the months in anticipation of this day in which he and Mary would finally be married, husband and wife, and looking forward to having a family of their own. But then he gets the news. Mary, your fiance, is pregnant. What do you think the range of emotions would have been? Undoubtedly, he is confused, he's perplexed, he's heartbroken, he's he's aching within, he's angry probably, and I will guarantee you that he is also fearful of what this means. For he knows he's not the father. And there's only one possible logical conclusion, and that is she's been with somebody else. See, that's part of the reason for this year-long engagement was to make sure of the purity of the relationship, and that as they came to their wedding bed, as they came to to, to, uh, consummate their relationship through the sexual union of the two on their wedding night, that neither of them had been with anyone else sexually. And yet now his dreams are dashed. But Joseph, for all of his hurt and all of his pain, the text reveals that he was a just man. He was a righteous man. We see that he was a man who loved Mary in spite of all of this, in spite of the the potential embarrassment to him. He wanted to protect her from prying eyes and from wagging tongues. And legally, he wanted to provide for her, even though he did not sense that he should marry her because there had been this violation of their covenant, even though he had been betrayed, so to speak, in his mind. He still wanted to provide for her through a legal writing of divorcement. Perhaps it was because he knew that it would be hard for her, having been unfaithful to, to marry down the road. Joseph was a good man. He was a man who wanted to protect Mary. He wanted to provide for Mary. Even though this may seem harsh, he was actually acting graciously toward her. But we also know that he was a man who 
was in touch with the Spirit of God, and he wanted to follow, ultimately, God's will. And in a dream that night, and understand that throughout history, God has spoken in many ways to people. He's spoken through the printed word where he guided men to, to write the words that he wanted printed. And, but this time was beyond before the New Testament was written. The, the Tanakh, the Older Testament was there. The law and the prophets and the Psalms and all of those. But, but God also would reveal his will to people through dreams and through visions and angelic visitors. He would do these types of things to let them know what his will was. In this way, he comes to Joseph, and the angel says to Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Do not fear what? Don't fear the ridicule you'll be facing. Don't fear the fact that the people will be saying, Yeah, Joseph and Mary and their bastard son, their illegitimate child, things like that at the well and at the marketplace and in other places to, to try to call out what was pure and holy and make it something that it was not because it didn't fit people's frame of reference. Joseph undoubtedly knew that by association, there would be these things coming his way. Fearing what the future would look like, fearing all these things, and yet he chooses to exercise faith in what God has said not in what his own experience was. The angel goes on to say, she'll bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus, which is a form of the Hebrew, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves, Jehovah saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. And he goes on to say that what is happening actually was prophesied some 700 years ago by Isaiah when he said, Behold, I want to give you a sign. The Lord himself shall come upon a woman and the virgin, the virgin, shall conceive and bring forth a child and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us prophesied 700 years before. He's saying this is a fulfillment of that. Joseph still has to make a choice. Am I going to believe that? Or am I going to believe what my experience tells me? Am I going to believe that? Am I going to believe what conventional wisdom tells me? He chooses to believe. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. Now understand very carefully and clearly the scripture says, though he took her as his wife, they did not consummate sexually or physically their marriage until after Jesus was born. To make sure that there was no question. When we look at Joseph and we look at his actions, we see that he is a man of great faith. Above all else, he wanted to do what God wanted him to do. He undoubtedly had natural sorrow and misgivings about Mary's pregnancy. He had questions, but he wanted to follow God's directive. And I want to say right now that having questions is not the same as not having faith. There are some of us, perhaps, that have grown up in a, in a church environment, and we hear the Christmas story, and it's become so familiar to us. Oh, yeah, and Mary was a virgin, and she gave birth to baby Jesus, and... Now think about that for a while. Do you really let the, the, the mysterious that set in? Do you understand that that is like crazy? It's like mind-blowing. 
If you were Joseph and someone came to you and said, oh, your fiance is pregnant, but the child she's carrying is not from some man, it's the Holy Spirit. Seriously? Would you go there? No, you wouldn't, because that's impossible. The reality is there are many of us as followers of Jesus who also wrestle with things in the scriptures. That doesn't mean that's a lack of faith. It means that we are simply trying to understand the what's behind this. How does this work? At the end of the day, do we believe God or we do not? You see, you may be here today and and you may be saying, well, I'm not even sure I know I I follow Jesus yet. I'm I'm here today. And, and, you know, frankly, the stuff you're talking about right now, that you believe in a virgin birth and all this type of stuff, that's exactly the reason I don't want anything part of it. You guys are smoking something you should not be smoking, and it's not for medical purposes. (laughs) This is not a peyote trip, friends. You're saying, and you're in good company. That's impossible. You're right. Joseph is saying that's impossible. Mary, when it's recorded of her, when the angel comes to her, angel Gabriel in Luke, and says that you, what, 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 you're pregnant, and you're going to bear his child, and, and he will be the son of the most high God, and she's going like, that's great, but how does that happen? I've never been involved sexually with the man. She knew what was for. She, she knew how poor babies came from. She knows the natural process, and she's asking, how is this possible? And the answer is, with God, nothing shall be impossible. You know, honestly, if we trip up on the virgin birth, what are you going to do with the crucifixion of Jesus where his death 2,000 years ago somehow pays for your sins? What are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? What are you going to do with the feeding of the 5,000? What are you going to do with the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead? Can I go on? The whole scripture is about the miraculous. But the issue is not really whether miracles are possible. The issue is whether God exists who is supernatural. And who can suspend or use the laws of nature according to his purposes in his timing and his ways. It is mysterious. It is mystical. It is faith. But I choose to place my faith in what God has revealed truth through his word, through the sending of his son to move into the neighborhood like it says in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us that we might be held his glory. The glory is of the ever begotten, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's miraculous. That's why it's good news. We can choose to believe that or choose to believe it didn't happen, but either one is faith. We have the right to make that decision. Joseph decided to believe and to move forward. You know, sometimes it's not just the difficulty of life. Sometimes, honestly, what God asks us to do is very, very hard and requires faith. But he does it purposely. God is much more concerned about our conformity to the image of Jesus than he is about our comfort. And so he calls us like he calls Joseph. Take Mary to be your wife, despite what the future holds. Trust me in this. And he did. Wartburg, again, in the same book, has said, Fear has caused more practicing heretics than bad theology ever has, for it makes us live as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. 
Another way to put that is many of us who claim to be followers of Jesus are practicing atheists. We are not trusting God to do the miraculous, the supernatural, to take us beyond where we believe we can go ourselves. And that's what the story of Christmas is about. Emmanuel, God with us. See the beauty of that name? One of the things that dispels fear is to know there's someone walking with you, beside you, that is competent, that is present, that is loving. When you're going through a hard time, don't you derive great comfort as well as wisdom from a close, trusted friend coming along beside you? If you do have a medical issue, don't you derive great comfort from knowing that the person who's the professional across the desk from you or in the room with you or prescribing treatment is there because they know what they're doing and they care about you as a patient, not just as a number? Doesn't that bring a sense of comfort and even if the circumstances don't change? If you need help financially, doesn't it help to have somebody come alongside of you that can coach you and guide you and help you and hold you accountable to get to a place where you want to be? Doesn't it help when you're involved in a relationship and perhaps it's an abusive, harsh relationship to have other people come alongside of you who can help you, love you, care for you, accept you, and give you direction but it takes a tremendous amount of courage rather than staying in the fear of what the future might be. Or maybe you have some addictive chains that are holding on to you. Wouldn't it be helpful to have some people like Celebrate Recovery, Mending the Soul, to come alongside of you and to help you move beyond that? But as helpful as those ministries are, ultimately it's one person it's the person of Jesus Christ, God with us, that empowers us to do which is otherwise impossible. To allow us to live with courage and with strength that goes beyond our own. You see, the scriptures speak to this, and it says in Psalm 23, Even though I walk for the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And Jesus prepares his disciples and he says to them, as he is getting ready, he's been crucified, raised from the dead, going back to heaven. He said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'll send a helper, but I will go with you always. I will be with you, even to the end of the age. We don't have to go it alone. But it starts with the relationship with Jesus, where we acknowledge he is God and we're not. And that we're sinners and we need a Savior. The good news is there is one who is the Savior. His name is Jesus. I want to guide you if you don't know that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. I, I would like to guide you through a prayer that will help you to clarify that. And now, if you would, if you just bow your heads with me right now. Humble your heart, more importantly. And I'm going to say this a phrase at a time. And if these words reflect the desire of your heart, I invite you to just say them to God. And that's this. God, I believe that you exist. And that you want to have a relationship with me. But I admit, I am a sinner. My thoughts and my actions are very short of your standards. 
I know that it's my sin that has separated me from you. But I believe that you love me so much that you sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay for my sins. And that he was raised from the dead. So by faith in Jesus Christ alone, I ask him to come into my life to forgive me of my sins and to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, I, I believe that if you pray that prayer and mean it, and only God knows where the person's intent of the heart is, but he will never turn away anybody who comes to him in humility and honesty and authenticity. I hope you have prayed that prayer sometime in the past or perhaps right now, because in doing so, that's the greatest of all Christmas gifts, the gift of life in Jesus Christ. If you have prayed that prayer this morning or you want to know more about how to do that, I want to invite you to stop and talk with some of our representatives at Direct and Connect. They're the people with the red shirts on. And just tell them that you prayed the prayer, that you'd like to talk with someone about what that means and how to get off on a strong foot. We'll be glad to help you with that.